Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I uh, believe it's still uh, time to say happy 2012. We're just starting the year. And uh, as far as my country is concerned, uh, I always try to convince myself that 2012 is going to be a leap forward uh, from 2011. 2011 was a tough year in more than one way, uh, as I will be talking today. Uh, I would like, before I start off, to uh, express my appreciation for my dear friend, uh, uh, Dr. Hassan Ali, and for the uh, Mirshon Center at uh, Ohio State University for extending the invitation uh, uh, to talk to this distinguished audience. Um, the, the, the talk is timely because in less than a week's time we are going to receive in Cairo a mission from the International Monetary Fund to talk over uh, the details of the uh, standby agreement that uh, is anticipated between Egypt and IMF. Uh, that's going to be a, a very interesting experience uh, for the government in general, but for myself in particular, as I have been a very uh, uh, strong critic of the IMF policies, now it's time you have to deal with IMF. So it's, uh, it's quite a uh, <coughs> uh, shift, uh, but uh, I, I hope I will not uh, lose sight uh, of my coordinates, political and social, uh, when I embark on this task as part of the government. Uh, as the topic indicates, I'm going to take uh, no more than 40 minutes because uh, I would like to uh, avail myself of your comments and insights, uh, which I will take back uh, with me to think over. Uh, the topic uh, has titled The Political Economy of Arab Spring, subtitled International Support Packages, emphasis on the Egyptian case. Um, uh, let me, uh, in order to streamline the presentation, uh, uh, allocate the entire topic into four distinct uh, pieces. One. Uh, the main causes of the revolutions in the Arab world, with emphasis in Egypt. What are these causes? Uh, uh, number two, I will move on to talk about the international support packages, particularly uh, immediately uh, in the aftermath of the uh, revolution of January 25th. Uh, then I will discuss uh, some specific elements of those support packages in terms of structure and uh, targets. Uh, in the fourth point, I will uh, talk about the issue, that, an issue that's dear to my heart, that's the issue of social justice, as uh, my friend uh, Hassan has just mentioned. And uh, uh, to what extent has the issue of social justice been addressed effectively? Uh, in the context of Egypt, of course. And then the final point, I uh, would uh, ponder the question, which is a very interesting question. Why did Egypt initially turn down 
an offer of support from the IMF and why is it going back again this time asking for that support? That's the final point that I will deal with. Uh, main causes. There are several causes, of course. Uh, each of them carries its own weight uh, behind the revolt that took place on January, 20, uh, January 25th uh, last year. Uh, and in fact, those uh, causes are not really independent from one another. Number one, we may think of corruption. The, the extent of corruption as a cause that led people to take to the square and to uh, steadfastly uh, revolt until uh, the head of the regime was toppled down, as we know, on February 11th last year. So corruption, unemployment, another cause for that. Then we have uh, uh, Inequality and poverty, these are the main causes behind uh, the revolt that took place on January 25th last year. Interestingly, when you uh, compare Egypt with uh, comparators at the world level, you'll find that Egypt doesn't really fare badly in most of these indicators compared to other countries, which may leave one to believe that, that uh, that's the case. What did the Egyptians take to the square uh, in such large numbers and stood there for a long time until uh, development started uh, to uh, unfold? Uh, for example, when we talk about corruption, according to Transparency International, uh, the 2010 report, uh, the level of corruption in Egypt uh, in fact, uh, is below the mean level of corruption at the world level. Uh, this may be surprising, but, but this is a comparative study that's done applying uh, a methodology to all cases. Of course, it does lend itself to a margin of error, as we all know. But nevertheless, if you allow for that, the fact is that the level of corruption in Egypt is less than the level of countries such as Italy, Greece, India, and uh, uh, it is uh, uh, lower than Argentina, Indonesia, Vietnam. Uh, I said less than, it's comparable to Italy, Greece, and China, and India, comparable, more or less the same level, but much less than what you uh, would observe in Argentina, Indonesia, Vietnam just to quote a few countries. But by and large, if you the level of corruption, Egypt is a case that's below the mean level of corruption. Which means that it's not a case of extreme corruption that would push people to take to the street. The second factor is unemployment. And unemployment, uh, of course, we have to draw a clear distinction between official and unofficial numbers uh, on unemployment. The official numbers had it that uh, the unemployment rate hovers around 8 to 12 percent of the labor force over the past 20 years with a clear cyclical pattern. For a number of years it would rise and then it fall, rise again, fall. Now it, is, it has been rising uh, since uh, 
2005 in particular with the uh, intensity of the neoliberal policy that was adopted by the government. So if you like, this may be uh, identified as one cause that really played a factor in uh, the breakout of political activity uh, in January 25th. Uh, however, uh, the, there are two points that one has to note about this level of unemployment. 8 to 12, as I said, is the official number. It tends to underestimate the real level of unemployment. And uh, expert opinion varies, but some people put it as high as 20% perhaps, instead of 12% or 8%. The other uh, point related to that is that uh, 8 to 12%, if you take that, really masks a demographic factor, which is the high incidence of unemployment among the youth. That, that factor is very important. Uh, among the youth, unemployment rate uh, uh, is above 30%. And this actually may be uh, the most important factor behind the revolt, if you take into consideration that the, uh, the people who initiated this movement on January 25th were basically the young Egyptians who took to the square and stood there for a long time. So I would say unemployment, particularly youth unemployment, may be uh, that most important single factor that explain the revolt that took place in Egypt. Uh, <coughs> uh, the scene on Tahrir Square, as we've all uh, watched on TV screens, was of people in, in their 20s, uh, more or less. After that, they drew a larger crowd, but that was a third. Then the third factor is inequality. Again, in terms of equality, uh, Egypt is thought of as a case of moderate inequality. We don't have crying levels of unemployment, uh, sorry, uh, inequality. Uh, but uh, uh, according to the UNDP uh, Human Development Report 2010, uh, they have numbers uh, uh, in terms of estimates for the Gini Index, which is one of the most widely used indicators of inequality. Uh, the index was estimated for one, 145 countries, and in Egypt ranks 120th, uh, which means that there are only 23 countries uh, out of the 105 that do have a Gini value less than that for Egypt, uh, which indicates that actually uh, uh, you can say much about inequality. However, Again, this is overall an indicator, but inequality, if you view it uh, through time, that is intergenerationally, I think Egypt is a case of strong inequality, meaning that a strong equality between uh, the old generation and the young generation in terms of opportunities of life, education, health, insurance, and all that. There is a sea difference between uh, the position of the old generation and the, uh, the new one. So again, average numbers may conceal some important factors. Finally, poverty. Uh, estimates about poverty vary a great deal, and Egypt is no exception. But uh, uh, if you take the art of $2 a day, uh, which is one of the 
definitions by the World Bank, then about 20% of Egypt's population is below the poverty line. If you take the $1.25 a day, then the number is down to 2%. If you take the national poverty line, the number goes up to 40%. So there you have it. Uh, but again, uh, in terms of poverty, uh, Egypt is less poor compared to uh, many other countries. Uh, for example, uh, you take China, South Africa, uh, India, Turkey. These are all countries with higher rates of poverty compared to Egypt. Okay, but again, uh, I would like to underscore the fact that there is a great deal of intergenerational inequality uh, which uh, indicates the importance of the demographic factor in understanding what took place in Egypt starting January 25th. That takes me to the second point, the international support packages that were there. You know, when the uh, revolution broke out in January 25th, uh, there was an avalanche of international support offers coming from all over the world. And if you sit down and count the number of pages, uh, the value, you add them up, uh, the numbers are staggering. But the fact of the matter is nothing of that really materialized. Okay, so I'm going to cite some numbers, but uh, reminding you that nothing of the numbers that I'm going to mention uh, found its way uh, to application. For example, the G8 uh, in, in the summit of May 2002, 11, uh, issued the so-called Duvel Partnership, uh, which involves uh, a support package of 20 billion euros. Uh, for the region, uh, Egypt will take the lion's share of that, 12 billion. 12 billion uh, is to focus on uh, two things, the, the political process of democratization and the economic uh, process of uh, going for sustainable and inclusive growth. Uh, the EU had made a pledge uh, in terms of a grant of two, uh, 6 billion euros for Egypt up to the year 2013 in three priority areas, education, uh, training, and small and medium enterprises. The World Bank uh, uh, pledged 4.5 billion over the next 20, 24 months. Uh, this is for the MENA region, and the biggest part is to, again, go to Egypt. The IMF uh, offered a 12-month support package, uh, a standby arrangement of 3 billion American dollars. Uh, that package was initially uh, turned down by Egypt. Uh, the surprising fact is that uh, the, the conditionality involved in that standby agreement uh, was much, much less than you would frequent in uh, similar cases by the IMF, either in the case of Egypt or in the case of other countries, which was kind of curious. Uh, why is it that the IMF was less stringent? In fact, less stringent compared to the, the World Bank. The World Bank was much more stringent, particularly when it comes to issues related to social uh, issues. So uh, now Egypt is seeking eagerly a 3.2 billion uh, standby 
support package from the IMF. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there is a mission that will be headed for Cairo on January 25th to work out the details there. Okay, so these are the numbers. Now, uh, the, the, as I mentioned before, I would like to reiterate that uh, uh, there are pledges from either uh, international financial institutions such as the European Bank, the European Bank for uh, Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Qatar Investment Bank, Saudi Arabia, uh, Japan, and all these. Uh, without bothering you with the numbers, I would like to simply say that nothing, absolutely nothing of that realized, and the question is why, and I think it's a legitimate question uh, to ask. Here we have to leave economics and uh, go beyond, much beyond, to the complex world of geopolitics and strategic calculus. And just to mention some uh, facts, the Saudis had approached the Egyptian government in February uh, asking for a release of uh, the overthrown President Hosni Mubarak. Let him go and let bygones be bygones and then we can deal with each other. Now, that request was politely uh, turned down and I think uh, pledges of funds immediately uh, were never mentioned. Uh, on the other side, there is this uh, debate about the, uh, the role played by uh, external funding for NGOs. And that, again, uh, proved to be a complicated factor in the uh, strategic calculus that eventually led to uh, literally freezing uh, all the funds that were uh, promised for Egypt. Okay. So that's in terms of the uh, support package. Now, what are the priority areas uh, in these uh, support packages? Uh, the, the, the two things, one, the political one, which is smooth and steady transformation towards a, uh, a multipolar political system, democratic one with respect of human rights and uh, uh, as wide as possible uh, domain of activity for NGOs, that's one. The other pivot of uh, almost all uh, support packages was uh, to, to lay the ground for sustainable and inclusive uh, growth in the sense that providing invest incentives for the private sector for foreign investment uh, and stabilizing the price level in order to create a, uh, uh, a climate uh, that will boost the growth, but at the same time include that, uh, ensure that growth will be inclusive, meaning that it does not leave uh, some uh, social strata marginalized as it has been the case uh, in the past. Uh, the emphasis on uh, areas like education and training uh, and also small and medium uh, enterprises. You would read this into more than one of the uh, various support pack packages. Uh, the, uh, the, the one of the issues that were debated strongly and still is being debated is the uh, orientation of the Egyptian economic system. What kind of economic system is it? And uh, uh, the pendulum swings between you know, 
ultra-free market economy on the one side and an economy with regulated markets closer to the social market economy that you would find in countries like Germany and the Scandinavian countries. And the debate is still on. It, was, uh, it hasn't been uh, 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 concluded. Uh, and uh, personally, I have been uh, part of that debate but so far I have found myself within the minority, which means that on the ground, the uh, weight of socioeconomic forces didn't change a great deal since uh, January 25th until now. Uh, I, I have been into three governments, and I would say that maybe the exception is the, the last one to some extent. There is more appreciation of the need to regulate the market. You have a market economy, but the uh, the market has to be regulated in one way or the uh, or the other and uh, <coughs> the related to that of course is what do you do with prices what controls or regulations you uh, put in place uh, to make sure that prices will be uh, affordable by the majority of the population so that you can eventually uh, meet the demands of social justice Let's realize that, remember that on Tahrir Square, uh, free, uh, a tripartite slogan was frequently raised in Arabic, Khubz, Hurriya, Adal, in English, bread, freedom, and social justice. That was the slogan that was most frequently repeated on, on the square. So if you take uh, bread and social justice, this speaks to the economy, and then freedom speaks to the nature of the political system. Okay, uh, this is how these uh, support packages were structured. Uh, there was a clear emphasis on an open economy, a liberal economy, with uh, the minimum of uh, uh, restrictions on dealing with the outside world. Uh, the idea is that uh, this is a global world that we're living in, and it's not good to insulate any economy, the Egyptian economy, uh, not an exception, uh, from the uh, dealing with the uh, international environment. Now, that, I should say, uh, at some point proved a very itchy and problematic uh, issue because, uh, you know, Egypt has, thanks to so-called economic reforms that were undertaken in the uh, late the 90s, early uh, new millennium, millennium uh, has gone ahead and uh, liberalized capital inflows. The financial sector was liberalized uh, almost completely, which meant that you can bring money in, take them out, no questions asked at all. Uh, uh, in the context of the revolution, that proved very troublesome because uh, Immediately when people took the street, uh, uh, money started flowing out, which meant a, a drainage of uh, the country's international reserves that put too, a lot of pressure on the value of the Egyptian pound. And at the same time, uh, actually is forcing the government now to seek funding uh, to bridge the, uh, the gap in foreign exchange and in uh, uh, local currency. So that, that's one issue still lurking there, uh, waiting to be uh, visited and fixed some one way or the other. 
And let me quickly move to points uh, four and five. For how did how uh, will the issue of social justice be addressed? I would like to say briefly that uh, not much, or or put it differently, not enough in terms of issues addressing social justice were implemented and debated. Uh, for example, at the fiscal level, we still, the government still shied away from applying uh, progressive taxation. In any country, uh, you cannot really address social justice without looking at the nature of the uh, tax system and the fiscal system in general. So until now, there is still this strong, solid opposition to uh, going for uh, progressive uh, taxation. This is one. Other is uh, opposition to imposing uh, controls, uh, taxes or whatever, on uh, hot money uh, coming in and going out. And, and actually, hot money is very troublesome in terms of it makes the task of the economic management a nightmare, because all of a sudden billions of dollars would flee out, putting a lot of pressure on the currency. And you have to uh, do something in order to uh, stabilize the situation. Uh, now, there are two uh, aspects to the social justice uh, issue. Uh, the intergenerational social justice, that means that the, in the country that has lived for quite a long time on depleting its natural resources, it, it meant that, in fact, uh, this is at the expense of the future generations because you're eating the country's national wealth, leaving the future generation with virtually nothing. I'm talking about he here about uh, crude oil and natural gas and even land. That issue is still there and needs to be fixed. The other question related to social justice is horizontal social justice. It means that uh, some sense of equality in terms of opportunities, income and wealth between the various social strata. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Egypt uh, has a long way to go in that direction. So briefly, uh, in my humble opinion, we haven't traveled the distance that is required in order to meet the demands of social justice as expressed by people who took to the square uh, since January 25th. Finally, the last point that I will and then I will stop. Uh, why did Egypt uh, initially turn down uh, actually a generous offer? And the, word, the adjective generous is not uh, an inflation of the meaning. It was really generous. I read it. Being a, a fierce critical of the IMF, I was stunned to know that there's very little conditionality involved in that. However, the government initially, in fact, it was not the government. You know, we have in Egypt of today, you have the government and then you have the Supreme Council for the Armed Forces. The Supreme Council for the Armed Forces is the higher authority because it acts as the head of state and as the legislative authority at the same time. So the government welcomed uh, in, back in May, April, May 2011, uh, welcomed an agreement with the IMF, but the uh, SCAF, the uh, Supreme Council for the Armed Forces, said no.
it's not the time for it and hence it was not to be now since that time uh, various developments uh, led us to rethink the situation and to uh, seek uh, a new agreement with the IMF and I think uh, maybe during January or not later than sometime in February we will live to see such a standby agreement being signed and going into implementation. Now there is a lot of uh, uh, groundwork has to be done that has to be done in order to enable the government to uh, interact with the mission by the IMF in order to secure an agreement that will not prejudice social justice issues. Uh, it will not involve any compromise when it comes to national sovereignty. But this is coming against the backdrop of a very tough fiscal situation. Uh, so it's like uh, walking a very, very tight rope uh, in this situation. Uh, it is what I have to say briefly, and I think uh, many things that I implied, just implied, and many things that I glossed over, uh, but I think in the uh, time to follow, uh, we will have uh, some opportunity to take up these issues. I thank you very much for your forbearance and look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you. So, uh, we'll take a, a group of questions of four and then we'll give the uh, minister the opportunity to respond. Uh, please. Somebody raise their hand here. Yes, please. Yeah, would you talk a bit about tourism as a major part of the economy, and is there a likelihood that that could come back fairly quickly or not? Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on the success of the Muslim Brotherhood in polls recently, and their rejection of secular Muslims as prime minister. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, well, first about the constitutional issue. Uh, the, the, like the timeline for that question is that, the, first of all, there was a heated debate in Egypt about whether to write the constitution first then go for parliamentary and presidential elections or go for elections first and then write the constitution. Uh, well, eventually what happened is that uh, it was decided to go for elections and then uh, write the constitution. Uh, the, uh, uh, as we know, 
this, the, the political forces that did uh, emerge uh, in the post-General 25th environment in Egypt didn't have enough time to actually prepare itself for uh, contesting an election. Uh, other forces were, were much more prepared than that and uh, it eventually it factored into the ultimate result of the elections. Uh, well, the, the, in broad terms, uh, what the elections have indicated, I'm talking about the parliamentary elections, that the sweep for the uh, religious, uh, uh, not fundamentals, but re religious uh, orientations uh, in political terms. And in my view, there is very little politics and too much religion uh, in that process. And to me, this is a worrying uh, factor, if, uh, particularly if you consider that Egypt is a multi-religious state. Many people tend to overlook that fact. Uh, Egyptians are mostly Muslim, but significantly also Christians. We call them Copts. And you have to factor this into any design of a political system. We are yet to address this issue uh, uh, so far. Uh, so what, uh, uh, there has been a great deal of pressure on the Supreme Council for Armed Forces to hand over uh, power to a civilian government and uh, in response the uh, SCAF, the Council, has promised that the date, the final date for that is end of June 2012, which is uh, about six months, less than six months from now. Now, by that time, we'll have finished uh, electing a parliament. Well, the Egyptian parliament is uh, a bicameral uh, parliament. There's a lower house, the People's Assembly, and then the upper house, which is the, the uh, consultative uh, Shura Council. Uh, Shura Council elections are yet to begin. Uh, and then after that, there will be uh, a presidential election and then writing the constitution. Now, once the constitution has been written, this may actually call for redoing uh, the whole thing once again, because the rules of the game may change, and many expect the rules of the game to change in terms of you know, the makeup of the political system, how presidential is it going to be, what are the powers of the president, what, uh, uh, who is entitled to run for parliament, uh, for example, uh, according to the current system, which is a um, uh, still uh, heritage of the uh, previous political regime, that you have to have at least 50% of members of parliament, uh, either workers or peasants. Okay, and this is funny. I mean, that you look at many of so-called peasants, uh, there is nothing peasantry about them at all, aside from the name. And many people are opposed to that, and I think when we write the Constitution, that is going to disappear. And hence, you have to uh, re-elect uh, a parliament. Uh, tourism, uh, come back. Yeah, tourism is actually making a comeback, actually. And uh, we're careful not to announce that publicly, because it looks like every time you announce that uh, tourism is rebounding, uh, someone somewhere is going to uh, create incidents in terms of uh, social rift and uh, violence that would uh, 
uh, actually uh, re reflect negatively on, on tourism. But tourism is uh, making a comeback, slowly but steadily so far. Now, uh, related to that is the issue of well, how do the Islamists uh, who actually made strong presen presence in the parliament, uh, what's their attitude to tourism? And that's an issue that's being debated in, in Egypt. Uh, I think the, the position of the Islamists start, started very methodical, ideological. They said, well, certain types of tourism, no. Some type, types of tourism, yes. Now I think there is a rethinking of, of that position. And I think uh, at the end of the day, we'll find a, uh, a better nuanced and more balanced attitude uh, by the Islamists regarding you know, what kind of uh, whether you'd allow tourism to wear bikinis and whatnot on uh, public beaches or you do something about that, uh, that is subject to change. But uh, tourism is very important for Egypt, uh, not only in economic terms, but also in cultural terms. They, this is how you let the entire world share uh, our achievements throughout history and that uh, we cannot afford not to engage in that. Uh, now, regarding the success of the Muslim Brothers in elections, uh, many people are, not many, I, I would say that like, like the normal Egyptian uh, since the days of Akhen Aton harbors this deep and strong religious, religious feeling. I mean, Egyptians by nature are religious, myself included, although I'm a leftist. But, but this is a trait. Why? Because this is a hydraulic society where uh, the might of the river uh, speaks of itself and, uh, and hence we had to be monolithic from uh, since millennia. But the new factor there is that there's much of Gulf influence that's coming with the uh, new uh, members of parliament that belong to the religious uh, orientation. Wahhabi uh, religious orientation, Saudi style. That's new in case of, in fact, it's alien to the case of Egypt. Uh, uh, the, the religion in Egypt is more tolerant than the one you would encounter, let's say, from Wahhabi. Uh, but the comfort fact is that uh, now we've been through stage three of uh, parliament, the People's Assembly elections. And it looks like uh, it's going like this. Number first is the Freedom and uh, Justice Party, the Muslim Brothers, uh, a political arm. And then uh, the Noor Party, the uh, political arm of Salafi uh, uh, group. And then after that, you get Wafd and uh, Kutla and all this. But the comforting fact is that no one was able individually to cross the 50% bar. So the Freedom and Justice Party will not score 50% and hence it will not claim a majority. You may think, well, but between the Freedom and Justice and the Noor, I mean the two strands of religious, they may gang up? No. All indications are that they, they have a lot of uh, differences that will make it very difficult for them to forge a political alliance in the parliament and hence you will have, in fact, if you compare this to the parliament that was uh, dissolved 
uh, after January 25th, the parliament that was elected, quote-unquote, back in September 2010, the new parliament is going to be more uh, varied, more balanced among various political forces. And that, I think, in the final analysis, factors in positively uh, in the country's political development. Finally, on the uh, why the change, uh, does it reflect uh, some realignments of political forces on the ground? That's why I took from the question, or does it uh, represent a change of heart? Well, in economics and politics, change of heart is difficult to, and I think it's the hard reality of a country that's under facing very tough uh, economic conditions. We do have a large uh, fiscal gap to cover, and with the dry, and in fact, with the non-materialization, if you like, of the pledge that I mentioned, uh, there is no other way uh, than to seek help uh, from the IMF. Especially that, in fact, the IMF is not important in and of itself, but important as indicator to others that, okay, uh, we can go along with Egypt and, and uh, forge some working relationship. Uh, in other words, we are uh, calculating that once a deal is signed with the IMF, that's going to open the door with Gulf countries, with the United States, with the EU, and other parties uh, to a great extent. So it's not a change of heart, it's uh, waking up to the reality. And I think maybe SCAF has learned a tough lesson there. We would have done better accepting the deal uh, last spring than this winter. Very good. Allah? Yes, under this change circumstances and the role that would be played by the Salafis and their foreign Muslims, any indication of any measurement that has been taken that what would be the public opinion of the trend in the future for the Arab, the, the Egyptian-Israeli relations? What impact would that have on, on the relations? Yeah. In a second. Hi. Uh, I just want, want you to talk a little bit, if possible, about the role of the, the Egyptian uh, military. And um, obviously, Very good. Yes. Um, during and immediately following the revolution, there was a lot of reports as well as documentaries on these kind of spontaneous uh, student groups or organizations that were taking a, a leading role in organizing and articulating the revolution. And I was wondering to what extent those groups as well as other grassroots uh, civil society organizations are continuing to participate in the, in the process. Okay. Fourth, please. Yes. Uh, the tripartite slogan that you described, bread, freedom, and social justice, seems to point to the importance of reality, of economic reality, um, more than just the change in the political system. And I wonder to what extent, the, particularly the bread, um, you, as someone familiar with the, the bread subsidies, I wonder if, um, if the IMF or others have put any pressure on Egypt and the government to change the way that the subsidies have been um, enacted. Very good. This is good for this round.
Okay, now rule of Salafis and Muslim brothers. Uh, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, managing Egypt's uh, international relations. I, I take it this is the thrust of the question there. Well, let me say that there, there is a tacit agreement among all parties that there are things that uh, are there to stay for the foreseeable future. And one of them is the uh, treaty that regulates relations between Egypt and Israel, for one. So neither the Muslim, the, the, sorry, the, fr the Freedom and Justice Party, nor the Nur Party, nor, nor any other party uh, has in mind uh, the intention of, uh, I'm not saying opposing, but, but reworking relation. However, uh, certain elements of that relation, particularly the relation between Egypt and Israel, are in fact undergoing revision, and I mean by that the uh, contracts uh, regulating uh, natural gas exports by Egypt to Israel. This is this, this now discussion because we thought that the contract uh, uh, suffers a great deal in legal and other aspects, and hence it has to be uh, uh, renegotiated. Uh, we, in fact, managed to conclude successfully a renegotiation with Jordan, and I think that uh, puts uh, some pressure on the Israeli side to uh, respond positively. And, and uh, we expect sometime in the not-too-distant future, but that uh, doesn't mean that uh, you say no to uh, uh, relations between the two countries on the basis of the peace treaty. Uh, regarding the uh, the role of the Egyptian military, uh, well, there has been a great deal of militarization, if you like, of, the, of Egypt in the post-1952 world, uh, in, in the sense of the army infiltrating various aspects uh, of society, uh, in, in diplomacy, in politics, in economics, maybe the other aspects that it didn't make an imprint there is cultural and social aspects. Now, in today's situation in Egypt, the military, as we all know, uh, gave a great deal of support to uh, the revolution because, in fact, they protected the revolution in its early days, and everybody in Egypt seemed to appreciate that a great deal. Uh, the relations between uh, civil society and, not civil society organization, but civil society and the military has been, has seen some clouds in, in the past few weeks and months. But my, my uh, sense, my hunch is that uh, we're going to uh, overcome uh, this uh, aspect that actually puts a pressure on the relation between them. Now, uh, whether the military are going to go back to the barracks, I think they will eventually go back to barracks. Whether the role in various aspects of society is going to be reduced uh, compared to what it is right now, uh, that I believe is going to take time. Uh, for one thing, uh, in the absence of security on Egyptian streets because of what was done to the police. 
Now, the only force that actually provides security at home now is the armed forces. And I'm living this on a daily basis uh, in my portfolio in particular. Sometimes when you have to transport uh, a very valuable uh, uh, subsidy commodities to various parts of the country, you have to provide uh, security for that. The, the only party that's able to do that so far has been the armed forces. So I think uh, uh, there is almost uh, unanimity in Egypt now that, okay, we should turn over this page of the military and move forward uh, in a civilian environment. It doesn't mean turning our back to uh, the military uh, forces, uh, but uh, perhaps redefining, if you like, the role of the military in Egypt. Uh, uh, again, the spontaneous group, how do they? They're talking about uh, what, what we call in Egypt, the, the Egyptian language, Shabab al-Tahrir. You know, the Tahrir youth. <laughs> at one time, this actually is amazing. Um, at one time, it was counted the number of unions, uh, associations, all that, uh, of the Tahrir Square people, and it actually exceeded 300, mm -hmm. which means they're talking about uh, a mosaic there uh, more than anything else. Uh, but the results of the parliamentary elections actually was a wake-up call, if you like, uh, forcing these people to think their position and to unite and to come closer together and act uh, uh, as a political group. That is shaping up, uh, but uh, uh, still they, they need some time to, uh, for them to make it. They're not grassroots, no. I mean, the feeling is that oh, these are kids that have been Thanks to their education and their skills with regard to uh, technological gadgets, particularly information uh, and media, were able to mobilize themselves uh, very quickly and cleverly, I should say. But their link with the normal men on the street are still very weak. They cannot match the link of the Salafis or the Muslim brothers to that. This is a fact. Finally, um, yeah, the bread subsidy. Uh, no, you see, the, the, I think the, the, the most uh, contentious issue in the debate discussion with the IMF is not going to be the bread subsidy, it's going to be the energy subsidy. Okay, that's the one. Uh, it is uh, agreed that, in fact, uh, Egypt needs a continuation of the bread subsidy perhaps with some improvement in targeting in order to reduce the social and economic costs of the subsidy, but it's there to stay for some time. Uh, on the other hand, energy subsidy is, is more costly in fiscal terms. The energy subsidy uh, uh, totals 95 billion Egyptian pounds uh, compared to uh, less than 20 billion of bread and other supply commodities. So, Here's the big difference, and the debate is about that. The government has already taken steps to rationalize, if you like, energy subsidy. Uh, and uh, some other measures are still in the card, waiting for a discussion with the IMF. Very good. We'll take the last round. Please go ahead. Uh, I would like to hear your opinion on the role of underemployment rather than unemployment in bringing about the revolution, given the high levels of education, the high number of college educated, 
so the, and the frustration involved in the cab driver who has spent eight years learning electric engineering and he ends up driving a cab 18 hours a day with a, a role in that and bringing up the revolution. Please. Yeah, could you talk a bit more about how you view uh, the place of foreign businesses in Egypt's continuing involvement and what types of new controls, if any, might be placed on them by the government? What kind of? Uh, controls. Last question? Yes. Well, uh, when you discuss liberalization as being part of the problem in creating these, this rise in unemployment, various sorts of economic crises uh, starting around 2000, you know, was it true liberalization or was it really crony capitalism? Was it, was it fake liberalization on the Russian model? You know, where, where Mubarak's son was selling, you know, splitting up national companies and selling bits and pieces to cronies. Creating a lot of resentment, so that it wasn't it wasn't true liberalization necessarily. What, what kinds of liberalization do you think are possible to, to achieve in a in a, in a socially just manner, um, in a fair in a fair manner? It might give you some of the results that you want without you know creating this both reality and appearance of, of unfairness in the distribution of these resources. Thank you. Okay. Unemployment, underemployment. Um, yeah, you brought up an important point because, uh, in fact, I, I uh, deliberately didn't mention it because of the time limitation. Uh, but if you factor in underemployment and the extent of underemployment, uh, it, it means that uh, the, the in, in distributive terms, the share of labor vis-a-vis -vis property income uh, has been deteriorating in Egypt uh, over the past quarter century. Uh, if you uh, take the year, let's say, early mid-70s in Egypt, uh, at that time the share of labor in GDP was around 50%. Now it's down to 26 or 25 or 23, depending on that. So it's quite a come uh, down and uh, incidentally, the United States has been experiencing a similar pattern uh, over the past quarter of a century, from my observation of it. Uh, but how do we explain that? Well, you see, when we, uh, under Sadat, talk about liberalization, Sadat coined the word, which is the highest word in Arabic, infitah, infitah, opening up, you know? And who would object to opening up? And the result was to actually uh, strengthen the tendency towards uh, acquisition and reselling of everything uh, to make a profit at the expense of production. So the result was Egypt's dependence on the outside world for imports uh, grew significantly. And in order to stabilize the uh, uh, value of the currency, you had to pile up vast international reserves. Now, the piling up of international reserves was at the expense of investing 
you know, these savings uh, for, to create productive capacity, which actually led to uh, underemployment. Add to that uh, uh, liberalization anew, that is in the uh, late 90s, early uh, new millennium, uh, under the title privatization, and uh, uh, so that resulted in uh, completely wiping out productive capacity. When I say wiping out, this is no exaggeration, which means you, you throw on the street the, the workforce engaged in that uh, through a mechanism called early retirement schemes. So you get a man in his 40 or a woman in her 40 will take uh, a handsome sum of money as an early retirement and then leave the factory immediately. They borrow the factory, would tear it down and uh, establish a development project uh, sense of uh, either a fancy mall or a high-rise apartment. In fact, we, we have one exa example that's debated now. A Kuwaiti company has uh, acquired both, that is, 27,000 uh, Egyptian Fidans. A Fidan is an area, in terms of area, is 4,200 uh, square meters. So 27,000 into 4,200. That was the area uh, for agricultural development, where they turned around and made it uh, for residential, fancy residential development. Uh, it's a terrible waste in the country's national resources, but again, the legal contract is very binding for the government, and uh, we're at a loss as to what to do with that. So the, um, the unemployment, the underemployment, meaning that you have this mismatch between the outputs of the educational system and the requirements of the uh, economic uh, structure. Uh, that issue is there and it manifests itself in uh, the curious phenomenon of people uh, with university degrees, sometimes a master's degree or even a PhD, who actually uh, uh, are engaged in work on a daily basis, even for a government uh, agency. Now this, one, this was one of the uh, most troubling factors in the post-25, uh, uh, January 25 uh, situation in Egypt. And as a government, we're facing this every day in, in the form of factional demands for steady and permanent work which we cannot afford, uh, uh, obviously. The place of foreign business, uh, well, it, uh, let me say that in terms of putting restrictions on repatriation of profit, no. Uh, we respect the repatriation. What we are thinking of is uh, putting some regulation on hot money, hot money, not direct investment. Direct investment, okay, because it's useful for the economy, it builds productive capacity, it either replaces imports or enhances exports, creates employment and income. Uh, so no intention of uh, putting a lid on the repatriation of profit. But the other aspect is more notorious, which is the, the extent and nature of hot capital uh, flows. If you watch the uh, index on the Egyptian stock exchange, curiously, you'll find it, it's like a roller coaster pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, one week up, next week down, one week up, next down. It has nothing to do with the performance of the economy, uh, but caused basically by the calculation of profit and loss on the part of holders of liquid assets uh, in, the in the economy.
Uh, okay, young people, uh, they, will they go up politically? I think so, uh, if we allow enough time for that, uh, because uh, the, the Egyptian population is, a, in demographic terms, a young population, meaning that those uh, uh, under the age of 15 uh, come close to 50% of the population, which means that uh, this is a factor you have to reckon with in terms of economic management and, and plans, but also in the design of the political system. And the, incidentally, by the way, the traditional political parties that existed prior to January 25th uh, failed miserably in the recent parliament election. That includes my own party, which is Tagamwa, at the left of the political spectrum. The WAF fate was not any better. And in fact, uh, you read the result of the election and there is virtually no mention of the traditional parties. What does that mean? It means that we are witnessing a new chapter in Egypt's political history after January 25th. Economic liberalization, was it clear or uh, real or crony capitalism? It was more like crony capitalism, in fact. It had nothing to do with, that, with the genuine liberalization. Uh, and that, that was one of the reasons that, that made the, uh, f the perception that Egypt is uh, a very unequal uh, society, despite the fact the numbers that I have indicated uh, there. Uh, okay, what are the alternative uh, liberalization measures, if you like? I, I prefer to use the term regulation rather than liberalization because when you liberalize in an, equal, in an unequal environment, then the outcome of liberalization is unjust, eventually. So first you have to make sure you have, you have a level playing field. You have some uh, comparative strength of various players uh, in that field. And uh, in that case, when you lift some of the regulation and you put in place other regulations, uh, then I think uh, you would come closer uh, to a system that makes more sense. Because you see, the, the, what happened is in the past, we compromised efficiency and equity under crony capitalism. Now we want to design a system that would guarantee uh, efficiency because without efficiency you can do nothing and at the same time uh, allows us to respect uh, social justice in order to, oh, as a matter of principle for one, but also pragmatically in order to uh, preserve the stability of, uh, of society in social and political terms. Right? Yeah. Very good. Thank you so much. <clears throat>